it is possible to live in the realm of freedom so long that we forget what it was like to be in our lost estate that Paul explains for us in Romans chapter 6 verse 2 when he says, How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? Romans 6 is one of my favorite passages, if not the favorite passage in my life. I remember growing up in the youth group, uh, Natalie and I both memorized Romans 6 in its entirety. Why? Because that's the real ins and outs of Christian living. It's for you to understand your position in Christ and how you yield your members as instruments of righteousness. And Paul is reminding us that sin shall not have dominion over us. We're going to flesh that out uh, at one point during the sermon. But just think about Paul's statement. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Well, if you are fully aware of your Christian liberty and your freedom in Christ, then you're reminded often of the price that Christ paid in order to free you from the power of sin. Now, the very presence of sin is going to be gone one day, right? He's dealt with the penalty when you were justified by grace through faith. The power of sin over your life is being dealt with today. It doesn't have dominion over you, but it's still there to tyrannize you, right? One day, however, the very presence of sin will be gone when we see Jesus face to face. Well, we sing that song, My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. We think about those words. Chains are gone, ransomed me. But we forget about that. We forget about what that really means. And again, Christian liberty centers first on who you are in Christ and the fact that you've been set free from the power of sin and death. Uh, the first thought that comes to your mind about liberty shouldn't be, what can I do and get away with it? It shouldn't be, uh, how can I continue to go down this path or push the moral line? That's not the first thing that should come to mind. George Seagrove supplies us with the same kind of thought process when he said this. It's my earnest conviction that everyone should be in jail at least once in his life. And that the imprisonment should be on suspicion rather than proof. And it should last for four months. It should seem hopeless, and preferably, the prisoner should be sick half the time. Only by such imprisonment does he learn what real freedom is worth. What a statement. My mind raced over to those kids in Thailand as I thought about being in a dark place. And you know the hopeless condition that we're in, helpless, without Christ, without deliverance, without, without rescue. Last, the last Lord's Day, we started looking into the principle of Christian liberty that sprung up out of Acts chapter 15. Somebody got it right, right? It was a Jerusalem council, and we began to discuss Christian liberty. Why? Because James says, the only way you're saved is by grace through faith. But there's a few other things we want to remind you of as Gentiles that you abstain from. And most of those issues were around the, 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 the issue of Christian liberty. And how you should treat your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And if you will remember, we pointed out a couple of reasons why it's so vitally important to study Christian liberty. The first being that it's a vital doctrine. Paul spent a lot of ink on Christian liberty. Perhaps more than any other subject other than the resurrection. So we quickly began to understand that Christian liberty is not just a peripheral thing. It's vitally important for living out your Christian faith. 
Christian liberty is one of the most basic privileges of the gospel. And furthermore, it is also one of the most, the most amazing implications of being saved by grace through faith. Meaning, justified by grace through faith. So for that reason alone, we need to understand what Christian liberty is all about. And then, second, we need to study this. Why? Because it's a practical issue. And the reason Paul deals with this issue is because in every church body, you're going to have people present who are strong and who are weak. And the interesting thing when we get to Romans 14 is that Paul doesn't encourage the strong to bring the weak up to where they are, nor does he tell the weak to judge the strong. The goal is not to get people in this church to be made in your image. The goal is for them to be redeemed, made in the image of Christ, right, and growing in Christ Jesus. And so we're going to address that issue next week. How do you exercise Christian liberty? But there's this fundamental friction that exists among the people of God when it comes to liberty issues. And he's going to deal with this in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 10. But for our purposes last week, we dealt with several verses, but primarily emphasizing one. And look at it with me. Galatians 5 Verse 1, the Bible says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Just consider the position you have in him and the fact that what Jesus did on Calvary was to set you free. It's a declaration, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And then this morning, listen, as a result of that declaration, what is our response? Well, the Bible tells you, stand Firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Embrace that declaration. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Now, as a result, stand firm in the freedom that you have. And as the NLT says, so Christ has really set us free. Now, make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Good translation. So, herein we have this... Uh, admonition from last week that I didn't flesh out as long as I wanted to. So that's why I've added it again today. We must embrace the declaration of our faith, of our freedom. And it speaks of that declaration of Christian liberty. It sums up the work of Christ in redemption and it transitions us to that next point of focus wherein we stand in it. Now we pointed out that we only have one liberator. It presupposes something if you're in bondage. It presupposes something if you have a liberator or deliverer. And that presupposition is we were in bondage. And that's true for all mankind. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Galatians 3 says that we're all under the law and under the curse of the law. And under bondage to the power of sin. And there's absolutely no delivery from that. With the exception of Jesus. Remember we read Isaiah from the scroll. He came to set captives free. So the Bible teaches clearly that we are in bondage to the power of sin and the curse of the law. However, if you're in Christ Jesus, you've been ransomed and redeemed. Romans 8.1 For there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. There it is. Summed up for us how that takes place. So it is being redeemed or set free from the curse of the law. It is to be, given, to be forgiven of sin. Set free to be God's children. His sons 
and daughters. It also is to be set free to receive His Spirit. And no longer be a slave to sin, but a son of righteousness. That's awesome to think about that. It is to experience liberation from the dominion of sin. Again, Romans 6, 1 through 3. I'm not going to read it all, but please visit that chapter uh, in your spare time. Life in Christ by the power of the Spirit crucifies the passions of the flesh. And we are set free so that sin will not master us anymore. Just look at the terminology in Romans 6, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you may obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Remember, folks, when you were lost, the fruit of your life was unrighteousness. That was your only recourse. And you yielded your members as instruments of unrighteousness. That's the way you came out of the womb, right? Yielding members, and the fruit of that was not good. But as a believer, if you're saved and Christ is in you and you've been set free from the law of sin and death, then you're called by God to yield your members as instruments of righteousness. And you can't do that if you're lost, but when you're saved, life in Christ empowers you to do that. Now, again, let's clarify something at this point. To say that sin no longer is master over you or is lording over you, that's not to say that the tyranny of sin is not still after you. Uh, because uh, y'all know this, don't you? You probably figured this out on the way to church. When some of you husbands and wives had a knockdown drag out before you ever got here today. Or in the home. You, know, you had difficulty this morning and you know that sin will rear its ugly head. And although it doesn't have dominion over you, it can't master you anymore. The tactics are different with the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, we know full, full well that Jesus overthrows sin as a tyrant. That means He sets us free from that dominion, but it doesn't mean that sin disappears. Hallelujah, when we see Jesus, it will disappear. Right? It's coming in the future. Instead of being in a position of enthronement, however, over us, it carries about this vicious warfare against us as His people. Paul says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't. That's what we say when we're looking at that big piece of dessert, right? It's my birthday yesterday, and I'm looking at them like, you know, I don't want to eat this, but I do, right? Sin is a lot like that, and Paul knew it. The things I want to do, I don't, yet may no, make no mistake about it. The Bible teaches that if you're under grace, not the law, if you're under Christ in union with Him, His death to sin was your death to sin. Romans 6.11. Isn't that awesome? That you can look sin in the eye and say, you are no longer my master. I have another master. His name is Christ. And that's our position if we're in him. But yet sin knows this, doesn't it? As a principle. But if you're in, if you're in, uh, if your master is Christ, then we're dead to sin. And so Jesus came into this world and became a curse for us in order to liberate us from the penalty of sin. And therefore there is therefore now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. The demands of the law have been met. And we have also been set free from the works of the law as a means of salvation. So we've been, we've been harping on that all the way through the book of Acts. And again in Romans 6 and in Acts 15 we learned that. That by the works of the law will no man be justified. 
But we also are not called to live by man-made rules. We like to set up our man-made rules and our straw men. But the Christian is not called to follow a list of do's and don'ts. Now you're saying, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, there's the moral law. We understand there are some things that are clearly taught in the Word that we must line up with. For instance, Psalm 1 tells us that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Those, those are all negative, right? Stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. We know what that says. We know that there is clear-cut teaching in the Word of things you should and should not do, right? We're not discussing those issues. We're talking about issues that you have been set free from if you think these things are what gives you salvation. Or, once you're saved, man-made rules that Paul is dealing with here, such as circumcision as a way of salvation, or mosaic legislation, or ceremonial washing your hands up to your elbows, all the way up, before you can do anything, of course, what Pharisees believed. Now, there, is, there are household rules, but make no mistake about it. When we elevate them to the standard of law and gospel, we are in trouble. And that's exactly what happens in the United States of America at times. We think, well, just coming to church is morally right, and therefore I'm going to be right with God if I come to church. Or how I treat my neighbor. I mean, you can uh, basically live out the golden rule in many ways and still die and go to hell. Y'all do know that, right? Because we're not talking about moral salvation. We're talking about transformation in the heart that makes a difference in your morals. Okay? Uh, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So the culture uh, at large, think about this. Our culture sees Christianity not so much for what we are for, but what we are against. And unfortunately, sometimes what we are against are not things taught in the Bible that we should be against. And so that, that's dangerous. There are certain things that we must stand for, and we will, without bending. But there's so much in our Christian freedom that we can stand for, and we can promote and actually be known for a positive influence in the face of the earth instead of being known for a list of legalistic taboos and Bible-thumping, pushing agendas that we sometimes give that are not lined up with the Bible. Does that make sense? Kind of looking at me strange, but it's the truth. Being Christian does not mean that we have a list of taboos, of do's and don'ts, and if you don't do this or you do do this, you're going to be right for God. There's not a list of things you can do, period, to be right with God. There's only one thing you can do to be right with God, and that's through Jesus Christ the Lord. There's only one liberator. The law could not liberate. If the law could have liberated us, there would be no need for the promise. Jesus would not have come if that be the case. And so Paul would say, let all man-made rules perish. They're not, they're not a source of salvation, nor if you're saved... Uh, and you're free in Christ, do you obey a list of man, man-made rules? Okay, we're not talking about what the Word says. So look at our passage. This, this declaration, for freedom Christ has set us free, and then he turns right around and gives an imperative command. You are commanded by God to stand in your freedom. Y'all see it in the text? Yes, you're declared to be righteous, and you have freedom in Christ, you've been set free, and then he turns around and says, stand free. In that freedom. So here's the second point this morning and the major point of the sermon. We are to stand fast in the freedom we have in Christ. Not only stand fast, but preserve it. 
Now, there will always be man-made rules that we like to give you and people like to give as a measure of holiness. Y'all do realize that, right? And people will often seek to enslave us with a list of rules. Paul says you have to resist that. Don't go back again to that yoke of slavery. That's what that means. And again, in light of this, think back at Acts 15 where they were saying, well, in order to be saved, they got to be circumcised. And they got to follow Mosaic law. And Paul says, may it never be. Remember Galatians 1? If someone comes and preaches another gospel other than the one I preach to you, let that person be accursed. Do you remember what Paul said about those who were teaching it? I wish they were to be emasculated. That's strong. Don't ever come and preach anything other than being saved by grace. You're saved through Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, right? It's all only in Jesus Christ. And so he's reminding them not only to stand in the freedom we have in Jesus, but also to, re- to resist or persevere in that freedom. Now some of you are thinking, well, pastor, we need a list. I mean, what exactly is the freedom we're standing in? I mean, how do we live this out? Lord, uh, pastor, give me a list. I need to, Baptists need a list, don't we? I mean, we need to know exactly what we can and cannot do. And you say, Pastor, can I do this? Can you? Wrestle with it yourself. Think. You know, it's definitely an area of conscience. Exactly what Paul is going to teach us. Now, I'm not talking about skipping church. This is obviously a sin, so stop it. You say, oh, it's not. Oh, it is. Hebrews 10.25. Imperative command. Do not forsake the assembling of yourself together as the manner of some, but exhort one another as much the more you see the day approaching. As Sam Cathy used to say, and he's in glory, that's the sin of forsaking church. So stop it. You say, well, I have to come on Sunday night. I don't know. You know, do we have mandate that we had church on Sunday night in the Bible? No, they met every day. Hello, Tokyo, right? They did, they met every day. But again, we, we, we reiterate these things not to become legalistic. I mean, your pastor's never going to beat you over the head for skipping church or missing church. I want you to feel empty. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel empty because you're not in the body of Christ and you're not serving Christ. And through the years, I've preached hard on coming to church, and I've gotten busted many times by people. Ah, oh, you can't do that. That's legalistic. And most of the time when people come to me, they're the ones that give the least and come the least and never serve. Do I get one amen? amen. I mean, it's true. That's true. That's the way it usually works out. I'm saying, look, the goal is not to feel guilty. The goal is to feel empty. And it's hard to fulfill your Christian gift and serve God in the body of Christ if you're not here. And don't give me this stuff. Well, you can worship Jesus anywhere. That's not the biblical model. You are to worship Jesus and all of life is worship. But the height of Christian worship is the body of Christ corporately coming together, hearing the preaching of the word, singing songs to the glory of God, because that's what you're going to do in glory. Amen? That, was just a, that didn't cost y'all anything. That was absolutely free. But here, some of you say, well, pastor, put it on the internet. You ought to have a Facebook and tell us what we can and cannot do. Give give us this list. I'm not the Lord of your conscience. If you're saved, you have one Lord over your conscience. Now notice that. If you're saved, you have one Lord over your conscience. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
So don't be loaded down once again with the yoke of slavery. That's what he's telling these people. Don't preserve that, preserve that freedom. The Mosaic law was a yoke of slavery. Remember Acts 15. The Jerusalem council figured out that their fathers could not even keep this yoke. Y'all remember? When Peter says, you Pharisees are coming here and it was a yoke of slavery that you could not obey. You could never be saved by the law and you know it. But you're going to put that upon the Gentiles when they trust Christ and say it's Jesus plus anything? We learned math, didn't we? Gospel math is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's gospel math. And that's what they're reminded of in Acts 15. Don't be enslaved again. Why? Because Christ Jesus has set us free. Do you know there's a cruelty in legalism that we often underestimate? Legalism always puts us or you in a position that if you keep all the rules, you'll be right with God. Just do this, do that, and you're going to be right with God. Now think about this. It creates one of two things. Self-despair to the person who's hearing it. Why? Because you can't be good enough to be saved. That's why Jesus came. You can't be righteous on your own. That's why Jesus came. So one of two things is created by legalism. It is the issue of despair upon the one who is hearing and his self-righteousness on the one who's saying you've got to do this, that, or the other. Isn't that true? I mean, that self-righteousness, well, I do this, but you don't do this, and if you did this, you'd be right with God. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. How do you make decisions? And how do you exercise Christian liberty? Well, that's set up for next Sunday. So you have to come back for next Sunday, and we're going to study that. How do we live it out? But for our purposes today, we have Christian liberty and stand firm. Let me give you an example from the Bible of how that looks. All right? In Acts 16, 16, we have an example. And we're going to preach this when I come back to it. Um, you're going to get two for one. So we're, we're hanging right in that place in Acts. We're about to begin chapter 16. And here's what happens. Paul is going to take Timothy with him on his second missionary journey. And Timothy's going to be a ministerial companion. Timothy has a mother who is Jewish and he has a father who is Greek. Here we got a problem. Timothy was uncircumcised. What was Paul's method of evangelism? His method of evangelism was to go into those cities and to seek out a Jewish synagogue and began to preach the word of God in the Old Testament and help them understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. Correct? Well, if you're going into a Jewish synagogue and you've got a hybrid person walking in there that's uncircumcised, What's going to be the response of those Jews in there? Anathema. They're going to have a hard time listening to the preached word. So Paul knew he would not get a hearing in those synagogues if he brought an uncircumcised half-Jew, half-Gentile man into the fellowship. So he says to Timothy, do you want to go on a missionary journey with me? And Timothy says, great. And Paul says, well, get your stuff together. And we need to take care of one little thing on the side. And what is Timothy's response? That's not in the IMB missionary manual. <laughs> and I refuse. No, he doesn't say that. He submitted to circumcision. He did not want his uncircumcised state to become a hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ moving forward. Now fast forward in the book of Acts. And you have Paul and Titus in Antioch, and the Judaizers are spying out Titus 
And they're noticing that Titus is a Gentile and he has not been circumcised. And Paul says, and we did not give in to them for one moment. We stood our ground. On the one hand, he submits to circumcision. And on the other end, he did not submit to circumcision. And why is that the case? Well, in the first case, circumcision would have been a hindrance to the gospel. And on the other hand, would have been undermining the gospel. You understand that Timothy did it so that he removed any barriers so the gospel could be heard. But they were wanting Titus to do it because they thought that meant Titus was lost. And Paul says, you're not going to undermine the gospel because you can't be saved by religious man-made rules. You see how it works out. For Paul, if the issue of liberty was interconnected and undermining the gospel, he stood firm and he did not budge and he put the boxing gloves on. Or took them off, right? He took them off for that. He was ready to fight for the gospel. Now, again, look at verse 13 of Galatians 5. Look at 13 as we wrap this up. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Can we all agree with that? I mean, really, he's, that's a, recapitula, a recapitulation of verse 1. He, and he gives you a sandwich in between, 1 through 13, to explain what that means. And in verse 13, he comes back and he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. But listen to this. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Wow. You have been given a gospel message that liberated your soul. You've been called to it. We sing about it, right? Remember that song, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And we don't understand as much of the fact that to be uh, the freedom also not only uh, paid for the penalty of your sin, but it gave you the right and ability to follow Jesus, period. So once we're freed, we're freed to follow Jesus Christ. It's not the freedom to go and do whatever you want. It's the freedom to follow Christ. So you notice this qualifier here in this text that kind of, catches all of, all of us off guard. doesn't want them to take something that is so beautiful of being freed from your sins through Christ, curse of the law being removed, on your way to glory. He doesn't want you to take something so beautiful and pervert it. And what the Galatians were often doing was turning that freedom into a license to sin. Do we have that tendency in the U.S.? That's laughable even to say it, correct? It ends up being self-absorbing, and it ends up being ugly. That freedom lived out begins to be self-absorbing and it ends up being ugly. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity and or an occasion for the flesh. And here's how we begin to think. Pastor, you said that God loves us no matter what. And we've been justified by grace through faith alone. And we're saved, sealed, and on our way to glory. And God loves us. So that means I can do whatever I want. Hmm? This is taking your freedom and using it as an occasion for your flesh. That's what it is. There is a profound problem with that kind of thinking. We cannot twist liberty into this form. If you do, your liberty is unbiblical. He would not need to admonish them as Galatians not to use their freedom as a liberty to sin if it wasn't going on in the church. There's a reason why he's saying that to those Galatians. Whereas you had the Judaizers saying you got to do this, this, and this in order to be saved. He comes in and preaches, no, you're saved by grace through faith. And you're free in Christ. And man, what a hallelujah. That's good stuff, right? Our chains are gone. But you're not 
given freedom to do whatever you want, you're given freedom to be able to walk in obedience and serve others and follow Christ. So if the first thought is, what can I do or what can I not do, you're missing it. He would not need to admonish them for Christ's sake if they were not struggling with this issue. God does love you. Amen? There's no question about it. What he did for us is amazing. It's grace. It's mercy for us. But that doesn't translate into once you know Christ, you can do whatever you want. God doesn't set us free so I can say, well, I'm a Christian. I can do what I want to. Liberty is not license. And in verse 19, notice what the word says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envyings, drunkings, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whoa. You need a list? There you have it. Right? So if you think that Christian liberty and freedom means you can do whatever you want, then you need to read verse 19. Because Paul reminds us that there are certain things taught in the Word of God that if you live in a uh, continual realm of any of those things without confessing and walking with Christ, then you're on your way to hell. The Scripture says you will not. Y'all see that there? It's not made up by the preacher. It says... That whole litany of things, if that's your lifestyle, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, boy, that kind of turns liberty on its head in certain ways, right? So you're not free to go out and do what that list says. Your freedom in Christ cannot be used as a pretext for self-indulgence. Y'all getting this? Can't be used like that. Christian freedom is, is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Okay? We have unhindered approach to God as His children, but we don't have an unrestricted right to wallow in our selfishness. And that's unfortunately what you see so much in Christianity today. And in Baptist life in particular, we see this unrestricted desire uh, to want to wallow in sin and think, oh, we're good. You know, Hebrews has written about that. It has five huge warning signs along the way of your pilgrimage with Christ, and you better listen to those warning signs. Because it may mean that you never had it to begin with. It's a warning to remind us. And some of you are saying, Pastor, I like this stuff on liberty up until you got to this point. Now I'm a little nervous. And you think, well, Pastor, I thought I was liberated from the uh, performance treadmill and I could do whatever I want. Well, folks, you've been set free in order to be another slave. And that's ultimately the master. Jesus Christ, but also one another. Y'all see that in the text? Through love, serve one another. You know, there's a good bondage, and there's a bad bondage. Being set free to serve one another is an awesome bondage. And if you let that bondage of serving one another typify and put boundaries around your liberty, then you'll be fulfilling what Christ would have you do. Because the greatest servant was Christ. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many. So here is the beauty of Christian liberty. It has nothing to do with what you can or cannot do in the sense, beginning sense of it. Such as, 
can I drink white wine with fish and eat red wine with meat? That's not the first thing that ought to come to your mind when you consider liberty. Paul would say those things are irrelevant at this point. You've been set free to serve each other. Can you all think about how this church would be revolutionized if we would all use our liberty to serve one another? Now be honest. There's a lot of you knuckleheads in here that you know you use your Christian liberty for one reason, and that's self-indulgence. Don't look at me so strange because I know it's true. you got to have it. You want to do it. And it's your right because you're justified by faith. And you say, well, I'm good. I'm good. You use, you use your liberty for self-indulgence, and you can look at me smug if you want to, but it's the truth. If you're not using that liberty ultimately to serve one another, then you're missing the point. What does Paul say? You do this to serve one another. That's why you do it. We can, we can deal with the issues of, of, of what kind of liberty you have, and can I do this and can I do that? We're going to do that next week, okay? But primarily, you're missing the point of Christian liberty unless you see it the way Paul has it in verse 19. And those, again, my, my eyesight's really bad, folks. 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives that list. Again, verse 13. The Bible says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, indulgence, but through love serve one another. Do you all agree that that is the quintessential understanding of Christian freedom and liberty? Is that you're declared righteous through Christ. You're set free. You're set free to serve Christ as your master, not sin. And that also means serving one another. That's a good bondage to have. We belong to Jesus. Hey, if you're going to be yoked to someone, you better be yoked to Jesus. Right? To that kind of servant. So that's exactly what Paul is saying. And in verse 14, you say, well, I'm free from the law. Listen to verse 14. The Bible says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Wow. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Man, that's good, isn't it? But the controls of doing that is not a list of do's and don'ts. But the Lord God of eternity has taken out your heart of stone. He's put in a heart of flesh. And that heart is pliable. And it's the Lord and grace and love that's making that heart more pliable each day. And it's that life in you that is serving Christ. Right? For we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. yet, Yet it's not I that lives, but Christ That lives in me. In the life that I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here Paul is reminding us, yes, uh, use your liberty to serve your neighbor. uh, Which all the law is summed up in that, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. This is not what we usually think about when we think about Christian liberty, is it? But that's how Paul saw it. We want to use our freedom for indulgence of the flesh. And Paul says, take your freedom and serve people. Take your freedom and love people. Christ sets us free to love, love and serve others. So, using our liberty in a way that puts someone else first exemplifies the character of Jesus. It's a demonstration of the fact that Jesus Christ lives in you. Can you think about what our church would look like if we lived like this? Do you see how important the horizontal dimension of Christian living really is? By the way, it goes back to coming to church. How can you ever live this out if you never come to church? How do you love and serve one another if you're not in the body? I'm wanting a response right there. You can't, can you? It's impossible. 
for you to use that if you're not in a body serving. So the selfish use of Christian liberty can be so dangerous. What if that governing principle of loving and serving others was the predominant thought that we each had when we walked into this building and we went out in our community and we lived our lives for Jesus. I think we would have a revival of untold proportions if we lived this out. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote this. He said, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. We like that. He also said, a Christian is perfectly dutiful servant and subject of everyone. Mm. And that's exactly what Galatians is saying. In Christ, you're a free man, and you are subject to all, and you are a servant of all. It's kind of silly to get hung up on peripheral things when you discuss Christian liberty, when you read the magnitude of what Paul has to say. So here's my admonishment to you. Use your liberty to serve and love others. And all of God's people said? Father, we just, we glorify your name that we stand in that freedom. You declared, embrace that. For For freedom, Christ has set us free. We embrace it. But Father, help us live it out. Help us stand firm in it. And ultimately, what we learn is that we use our liberty. Not first by thinking about what we can do and get away with, how we can push the moral line. First thing we think about is, how can I serve and love others? God, help us be that kind of church. Help me be that kind of pastor. That my first thought on liberty should be how Jesus set me free from the power of sin and death. And the second thought should be, how can I love and serve others? God, help us in that area. Lord, if there's an individual under the sound of my voice that's lost in their sin, perhaps they've been trying to do everything they can to be right with you. Lord, help them come to the end of themselves and understand that there's no way to be right with you except through the liberator. That's you, Lord Jesus. Only you came in the fullness of time. Born of a woman, born under the law, that you might redeem those who are under the law. You have redeemed us from the curse of the law. Lord, thank you so much for the gift of grace, righteousness, justification, saving us. And Lord, I pray for that individual who's lost today that they would repent and believe and trust you only for salvation. There's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son. And for Christians, Lord, help us to wrestle with it. To wrestle with issues in our mind about uh, Christian liberty. And to think about what honors you most, what glorifies you, and ultimately, how do we love and serve others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.